0: Welcome to uh, the fourth episode of Five Questions About Israel. I'm Yaron Dekel. I'm Dan Bratman, and today, Dan, we are gonna deal with a very interesting uh, question: What are Israel's obligations towards the diaspora communities? And you know, when I look at that question, there is an assumption in it that there is an obligation of Israel towards the community. And it's not a question, does Israel have an obligation? It says, what's the obligation? Agree?
1: I agree. And I look forward to hearing what our three guests have to say about that. So let's introduce our three guests. Jonathan Gendler is a native of Israel and today lives in Toronto. He served in the IDF for more than eight years. He worked in the tech industry where he started in R&D, research and development, and transitioned to becoming a business executive here in Canada. Today, he manages his family's fine art business. We have as our second guest, Yaakov Rabkin, professor of history at the University of Montreal. He has published several books and hundreds of articles on the history of science and contemporary Jewish history. His book on the history of Jewish opposition to Zionism is currently available in 15 languages. And we have Tifera Zeiner-Cohen. She is a recent graduate from the University of Windsor's Faculty of Law and is an incoming judicial law clerk at Canada's Federal Court of Appeal in Ottawa. Tifera is a proud member of Toronto's Jewish community and an ardent supporter of Israel.
0: Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your relationship with Israel, Professor Rabkin.
2: I have studied Israel and I visited it uh, on four occasions for a long time for, for sabbaticals. Uh, and I speak fluent Hebrew, and two of my daughters were born there, and one of them lives there. So I have a rather good uh, connection with Israel and know different parts of Israeli society. So uh, it's basically uh, for sabbaticals, plus, of course, my research on books con- concerning uh, Israel and Zionism.
0: Jonathan Genler?
3: Well, I guess in my case, the answer is pretty obvious. I I was born and grew up there. I spent most of my life there, and I still have, uh, of course, most of my family still lives there. I have uh, uh, many, many friends that are uh, that I still keep in contact with. So I'm very much involved on a day-to-day basis with uh, what's going on in Israel through these connections.
0: And you re- you identify yourself as an Israeli Canadian, I assume. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I,
3: sometimes, you know, I, I identify as a Canadian with uh, Israeli descent.
0: Good. Auntie Farah.
4: I always like to joke that in my family, if we didn't love Israel growing up, our mother wouldn't feed us, um, which is half a joke. Yeah. Um, We were always very, we were raised to be really proud of our connection to Israel, um, to understand, you know, both from a religious and from a cultural perspective. Um, I've been very involved with Israel advocacy throughout my entire um, educational, I guess, career, you could say. So, uh, most recently, I was the president of Windsor Law's uh, Jewish Students Association, where we dealt with a lot of um, Israel-related advocacy. So I just got back from studying in a Midrashet for a little bit, which was a totally different experience for me uh, in Jerusalem. And that was my, thank God, seventh visit. So I love Israel. And I, you know, even with all of its complexities, I think because of all of its complexities, I just feel very proud to have a connection to, to Israel.
1: Jonathan, uh, you mentioned that a lot of your family is still in Israel. How much are you following the recent developments in Israel?
3: Oh, uh, I would say it ranges from on a daily basis to on an hourly basis, depending on how intense the things are uh, at the moment. But uh, I can tell you that ever since moving here about eight years ago, uh, I'm still reading more Israeli press than Canadian press, so I'm still, I would say, despite trying to be more and more involved and more and more, uh, uh, you know, understanding of what's going on around me and in in the country of Canada, I'm still, I would say, uh, I'm I'm still more interested uh, uh, in my
1: heart uh, um, about what's going on in Israel than what's going on in Canada. Would you say you're following more now, given what's happening in Israel, versus let's say a year or two ago? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I said, you know, with the, when things
3: in Israel become more intensive, I switch from a a daily to an hourly, uh, uh, you know, update routine.
4: It's, it's funny because I always, whenever, like when I am here, I find that the headlines are always so much more jarring in terms of what's happening when it comes to security, when I, versus when I'm on the ground. And so I always find it so funny when my Parents call me like freaking out about something that's happened around the corner, and I'm like, "This is the first that I'm hearing about it." So somehow I find that news from Israel travels here a lot faster. And you know, at least if you're if you're watching, if you're observing, if you're connected, like somehow you always know a lot sooner. So that's just what I've noticed.
0: And Professor Rabkin, how often do you follow well, developments uh, in Israel?
2: Yes, of course. I was in Israel in last March when for a few weeks. When the demonstrations were in full force, uh, and I spoke with both sides of the of the argument, and I even wrote a few articles about it, so I'm I'm observing it and uh, trying to explain it to the public.
0: Did and you t- take any position uh, in your articles, for or against the reform? No.
1: Tiferah, as a recent law graduate. Are you following what's happening in Israel now more than you would have, let's say, a year or two ago?
4: I would say that my whole family is always following Israeli politics. Jonathan, my my I was it's funny when you say that you follow more keenly what's happening there and, and reading the news there. So do my parents, and we're not Israeli. So um I think I've definitely been very keenly following, and I've also been following from from Professor Kotler's perspective and understanding how he views a lot of these reforms from a legal perspective and a comparative perspective when looking at the Canadian legal system, because I've noticed, um, I don't know if you guys saw it, the, there was a CNN interview with BB like a couple months ago where he used Canada as an example of what you know, we're trying to, the Israeli government is trying to reform too. And Professor Kotler was like, that's not what's happening whatsoever. And I admire and respect him so much. And so hearing that conversation from his perspective is also something that I've very keenly been following. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that hopefully there'll be some kind of resolution or at least a meeting at the meeting at the table, so to speak.
0: I'd like to uh, ask you to uh, help us with your memory and and see if you can remember a time um, when an event or a decision made in Israel directly impacted the uh, Jewish community in Canada.
4: If I can just jump in here, I would say sure. anytime that there is any sort of, I think there's a lot of different ways that, you know, certain decisions coming out of Israel impact diaspora communities. But I would say, Um, especially in 2014 and in 2021 with the recent operations uh, in Gaza, I would say that those had huge ramifications um, for me personally. I I know so many young Jewish Canadians who during May of 2021 lost a number of people that they thought were very close friends because of their uh, religious and cultural identity being connected and rooted to the land of Israel Um, I was not willing to compromise on that in order to keep those friendships. I think if your friendship is conditional on my attachment to, you know, my ancestral homeland, I don't know if that's someone that I would want to be friends with. But I would say that that was a real wake up call, especially May of 2021. Um, For so many of my peers and I, you know, I live in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in Toronto, and we permanently have Toronto Police Service patrol cars here now, uh, resulting from events that took place in that month. And so I think, I think Israel has to act to ensure their security and I support them in that in that mission 100%. And I think that that was a real wake up call for Canadian Jews who Mm -hmm. might not feel the same way in terms of the litmus test that they will inevitably be faced with. Um, And so for me, that was a real wake up call. And I think for a lot of other young Canadian Jews, it was as well, too.
0: Before I let you, uh, Professor Rabkin, answer, I would like to uh, mention a call, a phone call I had with Prime Minister Bennett uh, when he was in charge in Israel and I was here as an emissary. And I told him that when decisions are made in the Israeli cabinet, they usually don't see the Jews in the diaspora as part of the decision making. Uh, and they also the implications that might a uh, decision have on the Jews in Canada or in the United States or all over the world. He listened carefully. Uh, I don't know if it made any any kind of an impact, but at least I shared my view that there are some decisions that have um, influence and impact on the uh, Jewish community uh, here. Uh, Professor Rubkin, please. Um, yes,
2: well, I think the most graphic memory of uh, concern that was expressed by Jewish community when I was visiting Cape Town. Uh, I think it was, in, and in Cape Town uh, I met for lunch uh, leaders of the Jewish community and they said they shared their concern that whenever Israel uh, conducts an operation in Gaza or whatever, uh, they feel it because there are 800 Muslims in Cape Town and they are express solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, and I, I said, well, what do you do? Um, oh, we stand 100% with Israel. I said, well, do you, have you ever explained that Israeli decision-making doesn't include your viewpoint? They have other reasons to make decisions. They didn't. Says, could you in your lectures say that that we are really not responsible for what Israel decides and does? So there is a very amb- ambiguous relationship. On the one hand, they stand, stand 100% with Israel. On the other, they don't want even to express the obvious fact that you mentioned that when Israel makes this kind of decisions, they do not think about Jews in Cape Town or in Montreal.
1: Well, just to that's jumping, jump in and there. That's so... So, I, I mean, I actually used to work at the South African Jewish Board of Deputies in Cape Town, and Tifera was born in South Africa, so I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. But even here in Windsor, so we are a city that's 25% Arabic-speaking, and Tifera can attest to this. So I remember when we had that situation in 2021 and there were protests, uh, you know, pro-Palestinian protests all over the city. We had a spate of swastikas that were sprayed all over the city. And I think people, some people really struggle to differentiate between the Israeli government and Jewish people. And as a Jewish community, we definitely felt threatened at that time, seeing swastikas all over the city. Um, uh, Jonathan, do you want to tell us your memories?
3: Yes, so the event that I remember to have had the the most influence on on the uh, Jewish community here in Toronto since I moved here eight years ago were were the clashes between uh, uh, Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis back in uh, 2021. Um, I remember it specifically, I think it was the most, uh, um, the event that that, uh, uh, took out the most people out to the streets, both sides, and uh, there were... Actual violent clashes between uh, uh, Jewish demonstrators and and Palestinian uh, demonstrators or Palestinian supporter uh, demonstrators, uh, and uh, I think beyond that, it also was the event that caused the most uh, controversy within the Jewish community between uh, people who thought that this was a sign of, of uh, uh, that there will never be a solution and that the uh, you know Arab Israelis cannot be trusted and uh, uh, others who thought that this is uh, uh, probably a wake-up call and that uh, Israel should do something about the relationship with its uh, uh, Arab citizens. Uh, But I think that both between Israeli and Arabs here in Toronto and within the community, this has been the most influential event.
4: I actually just want to jump in on that point because, Jonathan, I, I totally respect what you're saying, but I have to disagree when it comes to um, the skirmishes that that happened here in Toronto. And I say this because um, my brother and I were physically assaulted that month. Um, my brother was chased down the street while, I, while a group of people told him and screamed after him that he looked Israeli and that they saw him. And we were both punched in the face and pushed onto the ground. And it was a truly horrific experience for me because we did not engage with anybody. We were walking down the street. So I don't think it was an equal both sides taking to the streets here to voice what was going on back back in the land. I think that there was a lot of anger on both sides, but I don't think it was equal in terms of people taking to the streets and seeking out, you know, fights to be had. So in that sense, I think it was absolutely a wake-up call, and I agree with you there. I think it was a wake-up call in terms of The anti-Semitism that the Jewish community in Israel facing from their external neighbors and the anti-Semitism that the Jewish community in Toronto faces from our neighbors as well. In that sense, I think there was a wake up call that actually there might be something in common, you know, just the only differentiator being that I think the anti-Semitism back in Israel can take a much more lethal form than it does here. Um, so that was just my my experience of that month and, and not to take away from anybody else's experience. But it was honestly traumatizing. Um, and I think the experience of a lot of my peers hearing that this happened to my brother and I was also very traumatizing for them because we'd never heard that or had that happen before to us here in Toronto. So when I say a wake up call, I think that's that's really what I mean by that. And I don't normally jump into that story, but that was just my experience. And, and I think it's pertinent to share.
3: Yeah, I think I think this is this is great that you share that. And I, I uh, and I've heard from from others uh, of similar experiences of, of uh, Jews and, and extra Israelis who were uh, physically attacked. I just have to share also the other end of it, which is that I've been threatened by Kahanists in a, in a public Facebook group which has led me to uh, have to go and erase a lot of my history on Facebook, et cetera, because I was physically, they, they threatened me and my kids. So during that time, so that's what I'm saying, that, uh, that this, this incited both a clash between Israelis and Palestinians, but I felt that also within the Jewish community, there was a lot of controversy and that incited violence within our community, which to me is much more
1: threatening. So if we go back to the crux of what today's episode is about, when the Israeli government makes decisions, should it take into account how its decisions may impact Jews in the diaspora, or should it make decisions solely based and it's not on the national interests of Israel? So maybe Professor Rabkin, can we start with you?
2: I I briefly said that uh, decisions of the Israeli government are legitimately of concern to Israeli citizens. Uh, potential Israeli citizens, according to the law of return, is something else. Uh, also, I, you know, as a historian, I'm very much aware that Israel was founded as a revolution in Jewish life, a break with the exile and a building up a new Hebrew in opposition to the old Jew who was concerned about being a threatened minority. And the project is. Zionist project has largely succeeded, uh, even though to a lesser degree, perhaps among the Haredim. So a new nation was born and it should have no obligation to those that who are left behind in their view. And I think while Jews whose identity is vicariously linked with Israel, like I think one of our participants, they feel obliged to back it, that's perfectly their choice but I see no reason for Israelis to support diaspora Jews except for cultivating political support for Israel. But that doesn't have to be with Jews, actually. Netanyahu, when he was ambassador to the end, cultivated this political support among Christians and has been very, very successful. So Israeli theater, music, modern Hebrew, and other aspects of Israeli culture, they can be promoted through a network of cultural institutions in the diaspora, like Goethe Institute or Alliance Francaise, they should not be nested within the Jewish communities because this association of Jews and Jewish communities with decisions made by the Israeli cabinet, I don't
4: think it helps anyone.
1: And T. do you think the Israeli government needs to take us into account when it makes decisions?
4: I don't pay taxes in Israel, so I think there's a limit on how far my my opinion should be taken into account. Um, by way of anecdote, though, I will say that in March of 2020, when COVID began and Israel closed their borders, I remember being very freaked out when that first came out and the idea that as a Jew, I couldn't go to Israel in that moment. And it makes perfect sense, but the I guess, I I guess how to put it like this primordial feeling was like one of panic of like Israel has always been in my lifetime, you know, an escape route. And obviously I'm speaking from the perspective as a descendant of Holocaust survivors, but I've always seen Israel as a safe haven, really. And so that was very scary for me. On the flip side, I don't think my opinion should be taken into account when it comes to crafting domestic policies. when it comes, for example, to you know, economic perspectives or what have you. I don't think I have a say on how you know citizens are being taxed. I think when there's an impact on me, that's part that's par for the course. I've chosen to be involved and supportive. And so I think that there's going to be an impact. And that's it's a weighing. I think basically Israel is a completely unique entity in the sense that the the citizens that are a part of it and the community that supports it, meaning the diaspora community. We I would say that this is like an, a pre-modern identity that has now taken a modern political formation. And in that sense, it's a very unique place for Israel to be in and for the Jewish community to be in. Um, and so essentially like to, to summarize, I would say that there are times when I'm impacted and 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 concerned and simultaneously, I don't pay taxes in Israel. I'm not an Israeli citizen. There's only so far, that I can really be exerting my say without really like interfering in in what's going on internally. So it's a it's a way, it's a balancing act, I would say.
1: And Jonathan, right before we come to you, I'm also going to add that, you know, the current judicial reforms in Israel are also dividing the Canadian Jewish community. So we have a lot of conflict here at home. As the result of what's happening internally within Israel, do you think people in Israel realize how the what's happening right now is affecting us outside of Israel in terms of dividing our own community? Yes,
3: I, I actually know for a fact that they do. Uh, I have uh, friends who are following very closely uh, also what's going on in terms of... Uh, uh, uh protests or, or activities outside of Israel uh you know movements like uh, unacceptable are, are followed very very closely also in uh, you know in the Israeli media and I can I can tell you also that I've I know that that uh, Israelis on the side of the protest are also trying very actively to uh recruit people uh, in in uh, uh, Jewish communities all over the world to join their uh, uh,
0: struggle against these uh, reforms. I would like to, uh, we, are, we are going to wrap up soon, and I'd like to ask you more a general question. And what, what, what do you think? Do you think that, uh, uh, or I would say, what are your expectations uh, of the state of Israel when it comes to the uh, uh, Jews in the diaspora? And, and may I add, if these expectations changed uh, over the years, but what are the expectations, uh, Professor Rapkin?
2: Uh, well, I don't have any expectations. Uh, I think Israel has become a very successful country, independent with his own in, its own interests, and it acts according to its own interest, and that's perfectly legitimate. I think it's very romantic to think that it somehow is linked with Jewish diaspora. But again, I repeat, Zionism and the State of Israel were based on the negation of diaspora, Shlilata Galut, no, this is a very important concept, and I think that the new Hebrew who was born, like one of our participants, knows perfectly well that the, about the revolutionary character of Zionism, and I think it's, uh, for me, illegitimate to expect Israel to do anything in particular for Jewish communities, except, as I said, if someone wants to learn about modern Hebrew language and there would be like Alliance Française that teaches French, and that there will be Alliance Hebreu that teaching Hebrew, or Goethe Institute. This is the kind of thing that Israel doesn't do, and I think it should do because there are many non-Jews who are very would like to do this.
4: I agree that they that they should be that they should be creating these pathways of engagement beyond, you know. Coming into like having Shin Shinim at at summer camp, which I loved, obviously, but I think there needs to be other ways and not just for the Jewish community who are interested, whether it be in modern Hebrew or in the modern character of Israel or in the idea of, you know, this rebirth happening from a secular perspective. (laughs) I would say, you know, it's funny because growing up, and I still hold to this, and, and it is totally romantic. So I will just put that out there and, and just preface with that. But I have always believed that if God forbid something were to happen to me as a Jew, I sincerely believe that the state of Israel would have my back more so than I believe that the, and maybe this is me speaking on current Canadian politics, but more so than I think a lot of Canadian political, I guess, will would do. And, and by that, you know, I yeah. think of something like Entebbe, and I think even of something like last week, I saw that there was 200 Israelis and Jewish Ethiopians who were airlifted out of Gondar, Ethiopia. And I've always seen that as being a responsibility that that Israel has to the Jewish community. And I say, as I said before, it is romantic, but I believe that there are examples time and again that prove that Israel does take that mantle. The other thing I would say, whenever there's an act of anti-Semitism around the world, I think even though the experiences of Israelis don't necessarily account for that idea or that understanding of anti-Semitism as it is in the diaspora, I think that there is a responsibility for the Jewish state to speak out by virtue of the fact that it is the Jewish state. And I think that there have been examples for example, uh, at a recent soccer game in in Greece, there was a lot of anti-Semitic, um, you know, rhetoric being spread. And Amichai Chikli, who is currently the Diaspora Affairs Minister, did send uh, a letter condemning these events to the Greek president. Now, whether or not I think that anything can actually tangibly be done, I think it really matters that the world knows that Israel will say something when acts mm-hmm. of anti Uh, anti-Semitism occur. And so in that sense, I do think that there's a responsibility. But I think
2: if if I may interject very briefly, earlier you said it's a pre-modern identity. It's a kind of a pre-modern identity. And you gave a very good example that you rely more on your tribal belonging than on liberal democracy. And this, in fact, is a sign of demodernization of
4: contemporary society. Jonathan, do you have? I actually just want to very, very briefly respond to that and say that I don't see these things being at odds with each other. And I think what's interesting is that I think what we're seeing right now is a tear within Israeli society where there is this belief that these are at odds with each other. And I remember grappling with this question, like as a young teenager being like, oh, I didn't. Is a Jewish democracy possible? I don't know. But I choose to remain hopeful that it is, and that this current, I don't know, contraction is going to bring us to some kind of new understanding that accounts for that pre-modern identity and this, you know, this political reality that we live in. And I don't want to live in something other than a liberal democracy. So I'm, I'm very much hoping that somehow there is a way that we can meet in the middle. And I don't know if there is, but. I'd like to believe
0: yeah. that there is. Jonathan, uh, do you have any expectations from, from Israel towards the diaspora? So I'd like to start with a common Israeli saying
3: that uh, uh, sometimes we want to uh, go without, but feel like with, we're with or the opposite, go with and feel like we're without. And I think the state of Israel in many uh, senses is doing exactly that. Uh, uh, the state of Israel needs to answer itself. Uh, uh, the question of whether it is still the home of the Jewish people as a whole uh, mm-hmm. or is it a modern Israeli country and Jews are Jews and uh, uh, and it doesn't necessarily uh, uh, um, have to uh, uh, be a connection between the two things. Uh, if the answer is the latter then of course Israel owes nothing to the Jews in the diaspora and it shouldn't even take their uh, opinion into consideration because it might be biasing, uh, and and that's it, full stop. If, on the other hand, the question, the answer is still that that, that Israel is still uh, a home uh, or the homeland for all the Jews in the diaspora wherever they are, then of course Israel should take uh, 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 the influence that its action. Uh, uh, have on actions, have on on using the diaspora into consideration when they take decisions. When I came to Canada eight years ago, it was the first time that I met and spoke to uh, 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 Iranians for the first time in my life, because before I didn't have the chance to. And one thing I noticed about Iranian Canadians is that they all feel very apologetic whenever you speak to them. The first thing they say is, yes, you know, we're Iranians, but we have nothing to do with the government. It, it was... It was too common to be just, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, coincidental. So, uh, and I felt at that time that with Israel, it was the the opposite, actually. We were very proud of being Israeli, uh, of the state of Israel, etc. And I feel that uh, with what's going on lately in Israel, with uh, you know, the, the, the government that included the extremists and, and uh, uh, you know, the actions uh, that are jeopardizing some of the liberal democracy uh, aspects of Israel, I feel that many Israelis are becoming more and more like the Iranians. We, we, when when we're asked about Israel, we become very apologetic and we say, you know, we're very proud of the state of Israel. We're not very proud of the Israeli government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is something that I feel that has been really has been affecting uh, the way that the uh, uh, has been affecting the, the uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora.
4: I just really quickly, I just wanted to kind of go back on a few a few points. Yaron, earlier you had when you were um, asking if, if there had been a shift in how we saw, you know, these obligations. And I think this also encompasses uh, a little bit about what what each of you are saying. When I I've gone the last consecutive few years to Israel, thank God, I've been so lucky to do so. I always joke that there is Absolutely. Like Israelis are like a new Jew and those of us in the diaspora are kind of, you know, we're a lot softer, I would say, or at least in my opinion, I'm definitely a lot softer um, than, than, you know, the Israelis my age. And so I do see it's kind of Professor Rabkin, what you were saying earlier, there is a distinctive Israeli identity that is wholly, like wholly separate from the Jewish, the larger Jewish, I guess, realm in which the state operates right now. And and I think that also speaks, Jonathan, to what you're saying in terms of what, what Israel, you know, Israel has some questions that they need to answer themselves in terms of what identity they really want to be ascribing to. Is this going to be a religious Jewish state or is this going to be a state for the Jews modeled on liberal democracy? And I think that's been at the heart of, of the Israeli, the Zionist project for the last, I would say even before Israel's existence. And I just want to say that I think it's you know remarkable that 75 years on this project continues to evolve and we get the opportunity to be a part of it in some way or another. Um, even having this conversation, I think speaks to that. So I don't know, I think it's it's both terrifying and an exciting time, and I just pray for for some kind of dialogue or compromise in the middle. So
2: I think it's very important it's not that they're tougher or than the Canadian because I think Jewish defense league that Jonathan had the privilege of contacting uh, they're pretty tough guys I mean they <laughs> uh, so what I do think is that they're mildly speaking non-identical interests political interests and to be more frank opposing political interests because Jews in Israel largely support the nationality law of 2018, where the country belongs to the Jews and so on. If today in Canada someone would say it's a Protestant Christian country and we tolerate others, but essentially it would be totally unacceptable. Mm. And the percentage of French Canadians in Canada is about the same as the percentage of Palestinian citizens of Israel. But look at the difference. And that's why the interest of Canadian Jews who protect minorities and the interest of Israeli Jews who protect majority are quite different. Mm.
1: Well, at that, Professor Rabkin, Jonathan Tifera, thank you so much for joining us. We really have a lot to think about following your comments and we look forward to having further discussions on our upcoming episodes. Thank you again.
3: Thank Thank you for inviting us.
1: And with that, I'd like to thank Jonathan Gendler, an Israeli expat living in Toronto, Professor Yaakov Rabkin from Montreal, and Tifera Zainer cohen a law clerk from Toronto. Yaron, what are your thoughts following our conversation with them? Well,
0: um, I think it was very interesting to hear different perspectives. I have my own perspective about the obligation of the State of Israel uh, to the Jews in the diaspora, and it goes back to the fact that uh, the Israelis do not study about the Jews in the diaspora at, at nowadays. It all—if you look at the textbooks and the uh, curriculum in the high school—so it all ends mainly when the Jewish state was born in 1948, and then the Aliyah, Aliyah from from northern Africa. Uh, but not—not not how do Jewish life? Uh, how does Jewish life look today? When someone finishes high school, they don't know. They don't have anything about the conservative reform. Nothing is being taught about the reform movement. And we know in North America, Canada is included. Conservative and reformed Jews is the, the vast majority. And people in Israel, they have no idea and nonsense. And I think this is a problem. It's a huge problem. I can't see how it's going to be fixed but the fact that the uh, teenagers finishes school before going to the army and then continue to the university have no sense how jewish life looks at the diaspora in canada or in the united states or other places in the world it's a big big problem and it should be fixed this is something that this is an obligation of the ministry of education and it doesn't matter Who is in charge of the Ministry of Education? The fact that people in Israel have no idea what is the reform in the conservative movement and how Jewish life looks like, it's a problem of the Ministry of Education of Israel,
1: period. But but do you think that the Israeli government should take diaspora Jews into account when it makes decisions?
0: Uh, I told before that I had a conversation about that with Prime Minister Bennett. I doubt if when it comes to a question of security, uh, any uh, government will, will think of the Jews in the diaspora, but they, the government, the cabinet, and the prime minister and the minister of defense and the minister of diaspora, they should know that once a decision is made, it will have an aftermath in Toronto, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, and in Atlanta. It will have in Vancouver and in Ottawa. And the fact that they don't, it's not in the screen at all, this is a problem because the obligation might be that once there is an operation to secure the life of Israelis, and the decision is made by the by the cabinet elected government of Israel, they might need to do some work coming to Vancouver, to Toronto, to Atlanta, to San Francisco, to Ottawa, to Windsor to speak, to explain to talk with the Jewish people, to give them support because this is the Jewish people and the the state of Israel is the center of the Jewish people. So I think decision will be made according to the uh, security, but then work should be done and support to the Jewish
1: communities around the world. But I think, it, again, it raises the question what about our security? So, you know, again, we alluded in the episode to what happened in 2021. And because of what was happening in Israel, that actually impacted our security here. And we were basically left to fend for ourselves. And we weren't receiving support from Israel on our own security. So again, I agree with you. I don't think people in Israel always realize how what happens there impacts us in the diaspora. But I'm happy that we had this conversation with our guests and opened this dialogue. And we have a very interesting episode coming up. Our final episode with guests is going to focus on whether your views on Israel as members of the Canadian Jewish community are represented by our mainstream communal organizations. We'd love to hear from you, the listeners. You can email us at israelquestions at the cjn.ca. And I'm Yaron Dekel. Thank you very much. And I'm Dan Brotman. You'll hear from us soon.